continue our sermon series, the grace and peace and power we find in Him as God has ordained for us to know it in this wonderful letter, rich letter, written by Paul to the believers in the region of Ephesus. Thankful for our perfect God's will to work and to shape and to move us. To take us from where we're at, to break in and do a mighty work in us. It's as we get ready to go to God's word this morning, like, where are you at this morning? Where's your attitude, your spirit, your, what's on your mind? Are you very fixed on you? Are you, are you full of criticism, disappointment? Are you, are you worrying? Or are you coming to this place, to a time to be among the saints, to sing to a good God, to study His holy word, that you would move richly, shape us and challenge us and take us forth? You'd love us not to leave us where we are, but to mature us, ready us for what's ahead, that we would serve Him faithfully, diligently. Just love you, praying for you, thankful for uh, this time together. I want to preach verse 5 and 6 today in a sermon title that I've given this, The Sons of Disobedience. Um, You'll see why in a moment. To remind us of what Paul has said in chapter 5 to this point, look with me at God's good word in Ephesians 5, 1 through 4. He begins this chapter by saying, Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Church, we are to imitate the one true holy God, for He is good, and there is no one worthy to imitate like Him. We are to do this as His beloved children. As we imitate God, we're to put on our new selves in Christ and put off the old self. We're to walk in love. The same kind of sacrificial, selfless love Christ showed us when He died in our place and gave Himself up for us so that we who are guilty could be saved and made new in Christ. Imitating God and putting on our new selves means our testimony is not one of sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness. These things are not even to be named among us, church as is improper for the saints. In like manner, there should be no filthiness, foolish talk, nor crude joking in our testimony, as it too is out of place. Instead, the testimony of those who imitate God, those who belong to Jesus, who are putting on the new self in Christ, is to be one of thanksgiving. How is your thanksgiving? I'm thankful for you all. I'm thankful for what God's doing in and through us. 
Thankful for my brother Steve, who blessed me with a week off last week to prepare a sermon and preach and prayer. And I was blessed to sit among you last week and be blessed by your teaching, brother. Thankful for God's work in this family, in this city, in this region, and our impact around the world. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about making much of Him. We'd fight our sin. Again, we're so prone to wake up and here's what I want today. But we should wake up and go, I'm yours, Lord. What do you want from me today? How do I honor you? Make much of your name. In verse 5 and 6, Paul continues with his emphasis of putting off, putting on. Here he's describing those who are given to sin, those who do not imitate God, but are deceived and they serve their flesh. Paul loves his listeners so much, he wants to give them clear warning about what the sons of disobedience have earned with their sin. We're no longer to be like them. Look with me at our passage today, Ephesians 5, 5 and 6. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's first dive into verse 5 and see Paul's description of those given to sin. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Notice that Paul is essentially circling back to what he just said two verses ago. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Paul's major repeating these things in such close proximity is to bring heavy emphasis to the practice of these things that they don't belong to the redeemed. And so you could just pause and just go, is there any way that I make light with sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness? Because they're to have no place among us, church. He says, In the opening words here, verse 5, For you may be sure of this. In other words, you can be certain, you can know without a doubt that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, who is covetous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. His use of the word is here is critical. Meaning they are given to it. It is their practice. It is their way. See with me that this is the opposite of being in Christ. The opposite of one who is given to Christ. Paul is describing a sinner, not a saint. He's describing those who are given to sin, who are outside of Christ, 
They're still enslaved to their sin. They only sin. They're bound by it. The saint is the opposite. He or she is identified in Christ. They belong to Him. They are in Christ and therefore are no longer enslaved to sin. Paul is clear to say this in Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul describes here in verse 5, those who are sexually immoral, impure, covetous. These are sins. Sins before a holy God. What is sin? Question 33 of the Word Truth Catechism answers it this way. Sin is disobeying God. Sin is any disobedience in heart or deed to God's perfect law and commands. Sin is described in the Bible as a transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. For example, God's good law says that we are to be pure in mind and action. Therefore, sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman. And anything outside of marriage in mind or action is sexually immoral. I'm not going to go into detail on these specific three sins that we see listed here because I just did this in great detail two sermons ago in our time in Ephesians 5, 3-4 titled Improper Testimony of the Saints. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to Improper Testimony of the Saints. <clears throat> Paul brings, though, new emphasis that he didn't have a few verses ago when he adds that the person who is covetous is an idolater. What is idolatry? The sin of idolatry. Well, question 34 in our Word of Truth Catechism says it clearly this way. Idolatry is worshiping or finding hope, identity, significance, purpose, or security in anything other than in God our Creator. When our federal head, our representative of mankind, Adam, chose sin over obedience to God, sin tragically altered mankind's relationship with God, and as a result, of turn, instead of turning Godward we, and finding all that we need in Him, we turned to other things He created to try to be fulfilled by them. Paul gives this clarity in Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to Him. In our sin, we cease to see God as fundamental, essential for the existence and fulfillment of our lives. And so we turn to counterfeits. When we no longer seek Him to be fulfilled by Him, to be directed by Him, we seek something. We seek to worship something, to chase something, to be happy, to be fulfilled, to have purpose in our days. So that active vacuum then creates a great propensity for idolatry. We don't simply turn away from God. We find something to fit in the place that is left void. This is why Paul says later in Romans 1.25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
We all struggle with the temptation of idolatry. It's a part of our fallen nature. I believe it's one of the most underlying sin struggles we all have. But Scripture is clear that the redeemed person is no longer enslaved to sin. Therefore, we who belong to Christ must no longer be idolaters. Paul is saying you can be sure that those who are given to sexual immorality, given to impurity, given to idolatry, will have no inheritance of the kingdom of God. He's not saying anyone who ever at any moment has a lustful thought or covets his neighbor's cool whatever is out. No one has ever accomplished that perfection but Christ. But those of us who are in Christ are empowered to turn from the temptation to these things and honor Him. That power is within us. We are not given, we are not enslaved to these things any longer. The person Paul is describing here is the person who is given to these things. In verse 5, Paul is describing the sons of disobedience. They are those given to sin. In verse 6, Paul is going to describe the sons of disobedience as those who are deceived by lies. Let's look at his emphasis there. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What is deception? Deception is, or deceit is the action of concealing or misrepresenting a truth. Deceiving somebody. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. What, what, what is empty words there? The word empty in the Greek there means vain. It means useless. Let no one deceive you with useless words. What makes those words useless? They're not true. What's the point in believing untrue words? Don't be deceived by untrue words. Church Paul is saying here that the sons of disobedience are those who are deceived by lies. They are deceived. Deception is the very tool the enemy used at the fall of mankind. Remember with me that short narrative in Genesis 3 in the garden, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Just a a little tweak of manipulation there. Just trying to get her to start thinking sideways. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. To introduce doubt, confusion. 
The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now she's starting to reason in her flesh. She's not listening to the truth of God. She's listening to the wisdom of her own mind based on the deception and the manipulation of the words of a deceiver. It was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. How often in our story to this point have we been guilty of Getting to that moment of temptation, the crossroad is before us, and we let just a little bit of twisting happen, a little bit of manipulation of truth. We start to let our thinking get a little skewed, start to do a little bit of reasoning, a little bit of justification, a little bit of excuse making. We start to make a path. Church, if we belong to Christ, we're not to be deceived anymore. For we have the truth. We're to take that truth and apply it. Adam failed to correct the enemy's deception with truth. Jesus was tempted the same way in Matthew 4. With the same manipulations And every time Jesus rightly responds to correct that deception and those lies with truth. Satan told them lies. He twisted and perverted what God said. He tempted them to disobey God. And they fell for it. And so enters the sons of disobedience. The sad reality is deception and lies still populate our culture today, all around. This means the danger of being deceived is all around, all the time. It comes in deceiving vehicles, not in obvious vehicles. Right? We think we're doing good, parents, to keep our kids from the obvious stuff. The deceiver doesn't do his best work there. How is that true of us even as adults? In a world full of immaturity, false doctrine, fleshly deceit, we are so desperate for truth. The good news is that Paul says it clearly in Ephesians 4.21, the the truth is in Jesus. Jesus said it clearly himself, John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus says, I am the truth, Jesus is saying that all other philosophies, whether postmodernism, existentialism, secular humanism, man-made theologies, other religions, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, will fail to arrive at ultimate truth. Why? Because truth is only found in Jesus. 
Now, because our federal head, Adam, who represented mankind, exchanged truth for a lie in the garden, the lie of the enemy was believed, and the demise of mankind unto sin and death meant the human race would become sons of disobedience, be deceived all the time. Paul says this well when speaking of our fallen condition in Romans 1.18, that mankind suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Well, Paul's trying to pull out, if you belong to Christ, you don't suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You embrace the truth in righteousness. The cloak of deception, your, your sinful inability has been removed. You've been empowered with the Spirit. You've been given the beauty, the, the blessing of understanding truth. So embrace truth. Church, see with me, modern man's rejection of the truth is equal to a huge mess of current practices and beliefs. Things like cancel culture and political correctness and required tolerance for everything and anything and moral relativism and new age spirituality and religious syncretism and ethnic recompense and sexual redefinition. It's a mess. And it's all deception. Church, we have the truth. We need to live by the truth. Truth is found only in God. It's theocentric and therefore absolute. There, there is no authority greater than His. No perspective greater than His. God's truth is perfect because God is perfect. No human can accomplish this or define it better than God. So why would we turn to other things? Let's trust God. It's only an arrogance that would cause us to think that we have a better way. We who belong to Christ must first understand there is no middle ground here. If truth belongs to God, then we stand against the deception of man's sinful agenda. There's no room for it in our lives. So Paul warns the believers, let no one deceive you with empty words. Paul brings similar warning to the church in Colossae. Listen to Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. Vain conceit. Deceit. According to human tradition, don't let people take you captive by human tradition, church. According to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Oh, how we need to see the deceived are those who are enslaved to sin. They're sons of disobedience. They're not redeemed. Why? Because the redeemed hold the truth. They hold Christ. Christian, are you heeding this warning in your life? Are you being sure that no one's taking you captive or your loved ones captive? Are you asking the hard questions? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Where are your conversations with your blood family going? 
Are you, are you being stirred or influenced by your earthly daddy who is not of Christ and therefore is deceived? Who else? A boss you look up to, a, a good friend, a, a work environment. Church, we're to be defined by these truths and they're to change us and shape us and move us. We're to be diligent here. Are you on guard so that you're not deceived? Are you soaking your heart and mind in God's truth so that you're able to discern what is truth and what is lies? You will have no discernment, no help, no light. If you're not plugged into the Spirit and abiding, if you're not maturing in the Word. I had some sweet one-on-one time yesterday with my oldest son, Noah. Some study and some time in God's Word. Um, I actually had a look up at one point. We had spent so much time. I had spent so much time talking. I said, I have to stop because I have to preach tomorrow. My voice is starting to go. And I'm feeling it. Praise God. It was a great time. And, and we were really driving this point home of the, the need to be diligent, to be soaked in the Word, saturated, driving our roots into the Word. It's not enough to do it casual. We can't just touch it. We can't just grab it. It's, it's not fast food. We don't just grab it and keep moving. Oh, we, got to mature, we got to soak, we got to go deeper. The sons of God walk in the truth. The sons of the disobedience, the sons of the devil walk in lies. Why? Because they're of the devil. Jesus said very clearly to the sons of disobedience in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan, the father of lies, I coined him years ago as Dr. Deception. Why? Because there's not truth in him. He's a manipulator through and through. He doesn't stand for truth because truth belongs to God. He stands against God. He's not upright. He's always manipulating. Depraved in every way. And we who are outside of Christ, are the same. Those who you love and know who are outside of Christ are the same. They're sons of disobedience. Listen to Paul's description of their state in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. All who are not born of God, adopted into his family by the blood of his Son, are the sons of disobedience, and therefore they are children of wrath. They were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is Paul's point in the latter part of verse 6 of our passage. Look at it with me. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What is God's wrath? Think about that for a moment. What is God's wrath? It is His perfect, full force of divine punishment that is due all sin. So when we have a right understanding of our depravity and our deadness of sin, we will have a right understanding of just how of, the, of how just the condemnation we're under in God's wrath is. We just read in Ephesians 2 3 that because of the deadness of our sin, we're children of wrath. Because of our sin and betrayal against the infinite holiness of God, we are due infinite punishment. Paul says in Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We have to see the weight, the intensity of the reality of the punishment those are under who remain apart from Christ. The sons of disobedience. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The scriptures teach that God is condemning unbelievers who disobey God. And, and they remain, if they remain in their sin, they, they have eternal punishment to look forward to. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. This is hell. This is the just and right sentence of condemnation of fallen man who is depraved and guilty for their sin. The problem is too many of the sons of disobedience think that the afterlife is going to be good stuff. Thinking of the afterlife as a continuation of this life somehow, some way, despite their standing before the holy God in sin. They're deceived. What greater deception would there to be than not understand the judgment that's pending upon you because of your sin? To somehow think the afterlife is barbecues and sitting together with family and rocking Fido and surfing the waves. In this, few people really consider that there is true and serious judgment for sin. Very few consider the afterlife maybe something far worse than they've known in this life. Many simply cannot imagine God to be a God of judgment. They have wired 
a kind of God in their mind to say, if God is good, then He's not going to impart wrath on people that I love. Surely. People like to see Jesus as this kind of loving hippie dude and wouldn't kind of dare ever think that like He's going to be part of this judgment into eternal torment. And so to correct this line of thinking, we just need to listen to what Jesus Himself said. I just, I mean, many places, but Matthew 25, through three parables, he shares in the first story, the bridegroom returns suddenly, and the women who are not ready for his coming are excluded from the marriage feast. In the story of the servants, the master returns to settle accounts, and the evil, lazy servant is condemned saying, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That loving hippie talked this way. In the final story, the king separates the sheep from the goat, sending the wicked to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. According to Jesus himself, there absolutely will be a future day of reckoning, of judgment, that many will rightly be condemned to hell as the wrath of God remains on them. The Bible clearly proclaims the sentence for sinners in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This is not just physical death, but it's spiritual death. Revelation 20.11-15, I saw a great white throne, him who was seated on it, from his presence Earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus declared in Matthew 7.13, For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Revelation 4.10, He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. The guilty will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus, and His holy angels. God hands out ongoing punishment for those who remain unrepentant. What this means is Satan does not rule in hell. Satan is defeated. Satan is condemned. He too is tormented forever. God's wrath and sovereign rule is what keeps hell going. Hebrews 10, 26-27 If we keep on sinning, there is only fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Modern man despises, in many ways rejects, acknowledging the idea of God's wrath. But understand with me, this is yet another reality of fallen man's lostness in sin. It is another layer of their deception, of their confidence in lies. When enslaved to sin, mankind does not have a right fear, a, 
a right reality of God's wrath, but instead a blind indulgence in the sin that earns more of it. Understand with me that what many call freedoms to do with their flesh in reality is another layer of their bondage in sin. And they simply do not see the wickedness their flesh craves. It's all they know, and they love it. And it's earning them greater wrath for eternity. Church, I, take, I pray we take more seriously the reality of God's wrath. That, that we take so seriously our daily opportunity to witness to those who are in their sin apart from Christ. I pray that you see God's wrath is just. I pray, church, that you see God's wrath is praiseworthy. It is a praiseworthy attribute of His perfection. It is not a stain on God's resume. He is to be worshipped for His wrath as much as He is worshipped for His love and for His grace. And, and so it's, it's, it's ignorance, it's, it's naivety that, that would even cause us to say, hey, let's spend a little less time on God's wrath, a little more time on His love. You're not seeing they're both equally to be praised. They're both perfect attributes of the Holy God. Your flesh might say, Pastor, man, can we have something a little softer at Christmas? No! Why? Because this is what makes Christmas amazing. you got to see that. If you have a weak view of His wrath, then what's the big deal? What's the big deal of His birth, of His sacrificial life, of His horrific death? He did that in love. He did that in grace. He did that for our redemption. That we don't belong to the sons of disobedience anymore. And we're sent forth in our days to testify this gospel. That they would be renewed. That, that many more would be saved. It's not about us. Confess that is sin if you're guilty of saying, Oh, I want it to be all cozy and just the way I want it. No. Ask Him to wreck you that you would climb out of that flesh and grab hold of the beauty of this gospel, the beauty of this Word that does business with sin. In His grace, He has set many free. We do not know who God will save. We do not know what He'll do or when He'll do it, but we know He's called us to testify His gospel, and He woke us up today, another day, to do it. And so let's live today. Are you living today like it might be your last? I, I have the privilege of being plugged into a lot of people around the world. Therefore, I am pretty regularly praying for beloved brothers and sisters who today might be their last day. Just interacting with one yesterday. Who, who he's turned for the worst. And his time might be up. He's a good brother in the Lord. Are we, are we in tune? Are we joyful to be woken to a new day to, to make much of this good news? Of what he's done. We have to be willing to share the bad news of mankind's guilt if the good news is really going to be good news. 
And if you're hearing this sermon today and you stand apart from Christ as your own representative, you're still on the outside looking in. Not of the church. You, you might be hey, thinking, hey, I'm in the church or I'm in a family who loves God. No, that's not enough. Are you personally a, a man or a woman of faith in Jesus alone? Have you died yourself and you now live for Him? If you stand as your own representative, if you stand outside of Christ, you will stand before the judge alone. And Scripture is clear that alone you are guilty. I pray that if this is you, that it would be God's perfect will to give you eyes to see the depth of your deception and ears to hear the beauty of the gospel. And it would take hold of you, that you would confess your sin before God and trust your life to Jesus. For there is only one way to the Father. There's only one way out from under His righteous wrath, and that is Jesus. That means you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Him. It's your joy to be so. Confess your sin and trust your life to Jesus and be saved. Only in this can God's wrath be satisfied. Only Jesus can take it on in our place. If we will, if not Him, then you will take it on in eternity. Only in Jesus will the sons of disobedience become sons of righteousness. Only in Jesus will we have a full share of Jesus' inheritance and a seat at the wedding feast in his eternal kingdom. You catch that in verse 5? You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Church, the good news is that for those God gives saving faith in Jesus, they're given the blessing, the inheritance belonging to Christ. And we will reign with him forever. Holy heaven. Matthew 25, 31-34, When the Son of Man comes in all his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say, those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Are you one of those that as you think back on the Christmas narrative and all the angels singing, the announcement, the birth, shepherds, like how cool would it have been to be there? Are you aware rightly that he's coming again to all of his angels? Just like so many generations waited for him to come the first time. It's God's perfect will that we're in the timeline after that, but he's coming again. And are we rightly aware of that and excited and ready?
Listen to John's description of God's kingdom, Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Maybe close your eyes and picture it with me as I read it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. From the former things have passed away. What a difference from the other description I read moments ago. About judgment. Verse 5, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water the life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immortal, the the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 5, Paul says, you may be sure of this. Constant and continual reading of God's holy word seems to make it really clear. Church, how utterly powerless we are to save ourselves. How utterly wicked we are to have any longing for God. How utterly desperate we are for God's saving grace. But in His grace, He has moved upon us and made us sons of righteousness. Each individual in mankind has one of two identities. They are either dead in sin or alive in Christ. Who are you? Where are you? What's happening in your life? That right there is the most important part of your life. Stop and look at me and listen. You are either dead in your sin or you are alive in Christ. Nothing else about you is as important as that. You are under God's wrath or propitiated from it by the work of Jesus. Which one are you? If a son of disobedience, you have everything to fear. And no hope for deliverance outside of Christ. If a son of righteousness, you have nothing to fear but God. And you have a living hope, for you have been delivered by Jesus Christ. And now eternally belong to God. So Christian, make war with that sin. Make, turn from those temptations with truth. You're not given to them anymore. Walk in Christ and honor Him and make much of His name. In light of these most serious indictments on sinful man, there stands a single but bright beacon of hope. 
of deliverance. It is solely fixed in the righteous sacrificial performance of another person, Jesus Christ. He is eternally God the Son. He is the one we celebrate every Christmas. His birth, His arrival, meant the promised one of God had finally come to deliver His people from the wrath of God and deception of Satan. Jesus lived without sin and faithfully served God the Father and willingly surrendered himself to a criminal's death on the cross in our place. It was there, his body was broken, his blood was shed so that only his one perfect and complete sacrifice would be made to pay for all of our past, present, and future sin and bring us into a new covenant with God. Luke twenty two fourteen says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so we likewise obey our Master and testify these things through the Lord's Supper. We too remember what He has done greatest gift ever given. Are you excited about a certain gift this Christmas? The greatest gift that has ever been given, church, is the life of Christ. And we're about to remember it. The unleavened bread, the cup, wine, or juices, a symbol to point us to that sacrificial death, to remember what He has done, when you, church, you who have trusted your lives to Jesus, you who belong to Him, go to the table and consume these things, you, you show that symbol to say, look at what God has done. Look at nothing that I've done. I've earned wrath. God alone in the work of Christ has, has imparted to me righteousness. If you have been convicted by sin this morning, then confess it to Him. Don't avoid the table. Go to the table to repent of that sin and put it away from you. Invite accountability. Confess it to brothers and sisters so that you're not returning there, so that you're not given to those things anymore. If you don't belong to Christ, then this 
practice, this eating and drinking is not for you to do. It's for the saved saints, but it is for you to watch. It is intended as a testimony for you to see that you would be brought to direct confrontation of where do you stand in your sin. Has Jesus paid that price for you? Do you now belong to Him or not? It is our prayer that you would see the Gospel, hear the Gospel, confess your sin and believe and be saved. Not only then will you join us at the table, but you'll join us at the feast forever in holy heaven. If that is you who who is saved this day, share that with us. We want to celebrate that with you. We want to talk to you about God's great gift and uh, practice of baptism. Um, and, And if not today, then I pray it soon. I pray you would do business with these things every day. I'm going to pray. The tables are going to be open and ready. I encourage you to pray, to be still before God, and go only when you're ready. Let us testify. Worship Him. Praise Him. Oh, praise the One who paid my debt. Lord, we thank You for this time together. We thank You for this day that you have made. We thank you for this word, your perfect word, your holy word. The Spirit is at work in stirring souls to illuminate and convict and to mobilize. It's my deep prayer that there would be less and less sons of disobedience and more and more sons of righteousness. My deep prayer, Lord God, that there would be, by your sovereign time and hand, eyes to see and ears to hear, that the gospel would be changing lives this hour, not only at this church, but local congregations around the world. There's no part of this message that we would be guilty of making light with, but it would move us, motivate us, excite us for these days that you've given us. And we, your church, we, your blood-bought family, your bride, come obedient, ready to the table this morning to testify of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Do your mighty work in this time, in our lives and those who are watching. Be glorified in our prayers and our words and our worship. In Jesus' name we pray.